How do we achieve this inversion of the Leibniz project? It connects to what we've talked about before in terms of Chaitin's omega number, which you'll remember is that if we try to calculate it, we find that we can get an approximation to it from below, i.e. That a number that is getting bigger and bigger, but we never quite know how well we're doing, we never know how much further we need to go, and that the particular value of any bit in our expression of omega is always subject to change, is always likely to be flipped by some later process that changes it by adding new halting programs to it. So that if we thought we were certain about the 50th bit the first time we calculated it, and that's no mean achievement, we'd be wrong because the 52nd or the 62nd or the 92nd bit later on might produce such a large number that it would flow back and force us to change the bit that we thought was already certain. And I find this an extraordinarily stimulating idea, although there's nothing special about Omega, but Omega is particularly interesting in that in most cases, I mean, for example, if you're calculating the constant pi, this will also be true, but it'll stop being true quite quickly. By the time you've gone in any series a few places, maybe quite a lot of places, uh, beyond a particular bit, it will stabilise and it'll never change again because the numbers that you're getting from later terms are too small. But in the case of omega, that just isn't so. Uh, you have no idea how big uh, a number later on will be. So, let's suppose that when we calculate a little bit further, we find out that the 50th bit flicks, becomes, say, 0, having been 1, and then it flips back again to 1, and so on, indefinitely. And three people in, in New Zealand, I may have mentioned this before, uh, Kalud, Deneen, and Shu, calculated the first 64 bits of Omega on a particular machine. Remember, Omega is always specific to a particular machine. In their case, it was a register machine. And they then found, with great uh, labor, that they needed to go as far as the 84th bit to be sure that the 64th bit would no longer flip any more. And they had to do some pretty hair-raising calculations to get that. Others and this is even more intriguing, I haven't really investigated it, have shown that in some cases uh, there is a, a set theory called Zermelo-Frankel with choice. Uh, an American mathematician called Solovey proved that you can't calculate any bits of omega at all in this circumstance. Well, we won't go into that, but it's interesting that that crops up. So, can we have a formula that says, in order to be certain about the 50th bit, we need to calculate for a particular machine as far as the 90th bit, say? And the answer is no, we can't. Uh, we don't have any sense of how close we are to a final value, and we can't have such uh, certainty either. We need to know We need to know far more 
than what we can know in terms of the past and the present, even to be sure what the real value of the present is. That's an extension of the same idea. And so if we think back to the Leibniz project, Leibniz would love to be able to say that we can reduce the world to a simple form and on the basis of a simple form like the formula on a t-shirt, predict the future. But the omega number says, no, even if you know the first million bits, you cannot know the million and first bit until you've actually calculated it. And even when you've calculated it, you will need to go indeterminately far into the future, perhaps even to the two millionth bit, to be completely sure that the value that you thought you had for the millionth bit is true. So there is a double sense in which there is uncertainty. We can't tell what the next bit will be, even on our first encounter, our first calculation. But even when we've done that first calculation, we can't be sure that it won't change later on. The notion that the present isn't what it seems and that the present therefore may change seems completely counterintuitive. But it isn't so counterintuitive if we stop and if we say, yes, but the way we think of the present is itself a representation. In other words, we can't get hold of the world as it really is right now. We can only get hold of the world as it seems to be right now. And the way the world seems to be right now may prove to be different from the way it appears. So that, and this is of course a huge moral dilemma, what appears at the moment to be an act of great benevolence, a good act, could have catastrophic consequences. And what appears to be a heinous act that nobody would dream of committing could in some scenarios, have very positive consequences if measured by some uh, terms, let's say, of utilitarianism, the number of people that it benefits. But most of us are revolted by such a notion. Most of us find it completely unacceptable, for example, to contemplate the idea that by committing a murder, I might actually bring about more good than by not committing it or that by killing someone and recycling their organs among 30 needy, unhealthy people, I can do more good than by leaving the person who would otherwise be perfectly healthy alive. All of us, well, not quite all of us, but most of us, I think, are appalled by such a notion, and so we should be. But that's because there's no way of telling what the future may hold. Indeed, even if we were to accept that the consequences of a good act could be bad and of a bad act could be good, that doesn't provide us with a justification for either because, of course, the opposite could also be true. You might say, well, I'm going to do some really terrible thing because good will come of it. Well, you simply can't possibly know that. Okay. So what is the basis going to be 
for action, for thought, for words, for writings? How are we going to decide what to do if the relationship between what we think is right now and what proves to be right is so tenuous? So if you're bored so far with with hearing me talk about pragmatism, I'm afraid I'm coming back to it now, that I don't see that there is an alternative to doing what you think it best to do right now. If you were to say to me, oh, well, you keep saying this, but how do you begin to assess what it's best to do right now if we can't possibly know the consequences of anything that we do right now? Well, I think the answer is that we don't, we don't try to measure what we think is best to do right now solely on the basis of what its consequences will be. There has to be a sense in which we plumb the depths of our being in order to reach some conclusion about what we think it right to do. And of course, there will be a huge chorus of disapproval at this point because people will say, but people have been doing that forever and that's got us into this mess. But that's not quite true. A lot of our action isn't based upon what we think is right, but upon what other people tell us is right. And so the whole human race, and this comes back, of course, to my theme about anarchism and the role of leaders, the whole human race has been disenfranchised by our belief in the need for exemplars, for the, in the need for heroes, in the need for messianic figures, who we tend to allow to tell us what we should do, rather than to plumb the depths of our own being and think about the resonances of our own being, and to put some quantities on it, although, of course, this is very dangerous because someone's going to come back and say, well, that doesn't work. But let's suppose that there are a thousand people following one leader, telling them what to do and suppressing their own instincts about what it is that we should do. Then those thousand people depend upon the judgment of that leader, right or wrong, usually wrong in my judgment. But if all thousand and one of them were to use their natural ability to plumb the depths of their own being in order to determine what they should do on the grounds that it's the best they can do right now, then the resources that the human race and human societies would bring to bear upon solving their problems would be a thousandfold greater than if we simply listen to leaders. And that is the philosophical argument behind a properly understood anarchism that gives everyone a right to make decisions about their own lives and minimises the extent to which we should listen to other people's opinions rather than listen to our own. So what we've come across here and here I'm going to stop because the last episode was far too long. What we come across here is the notion that we can't know the present and we can't judge the present in terms of its consequences 
So instead, we have to assess what we should be doing, saying, thinking, writing, etc. on the basis of plumbing the depths of our existence on the resonances that we can experience if we don't allow ourselves to be influenced too greatly by other people's voices. Now, of course, we should listen to other people and they should listen to us. But that's another story. Thank you very much for listening.